So these are uh, these two are both New York Times. One, the U.S. is edging toward normal, alarming some officials. Mm. To understatement, <laughs> yeah. American life begins to return to normal, even as some fear it's too soon. Ah, uh, yes, those some. <laughs> Editors have never sum. gotten over the idea that, like, while some argue, is just the, the mythical shadowy some. That's the best. Yeah, that, that's that's the, uh, the best like myth making right? that the that the press does. The Hill experts warn U.S. risks delaying normal summer. Oh, normal summer. <laughs> Welcome to the Deaf Panel. We've got a really packed episode for you today. But before we get into that, let me just quickly plug the Patreon, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You can get two episodes a week. This is the free one. So if you'd like to support our work, become a patron, get access to the entire back catalog of episodes and a discount on merch. And when you get the patron episode, you also get a sneak preview of our 100% accurate, never fail predictions of the future. The Nostradamus <laughs> level, the Nostradamus <laughs> level of death panel subscription. Yes. We got a request in the in the Discord the other day to just start predicting that everyone in America would be given a check for a million dollars because all the horrible stuff that we predict does tend to come true. I sort of wonder so. if like we're predicting or it's just this sort of like what what we're seeing <laughs> we're just sort of like seeing the the leading edge of the future is like there's, there's no prediction involved it's like this is simply happening and it's not being reported on so it's like is it prediction or <laughs> we're just like not susceptible to, to editorial pressures right yeah um, we're just sometimes responding. i wonder should we get started by talking about what's gone on in texas and mississippi this week because there's been a lot of news hits about Texas and Mississippi announcing that they were going to rescind their mask mandates, but it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, I feel like the the Texas and Mississippi decisions to like relax all of the orders to lift the mask mandates and then to prevent local governments from like doing anything to to impose those restrictions maybe doesn't seem apparent to a lot of people that this is in fact not an isolated story that this is in fact going on all over the place and more than any sort of like column about like how will we know the the uh pandemic is over very much reminds me of the uh that bush administration appointee like quote in the ron suskin book from from the iraq war where somebody says to the reporter like you know we make reality you just report on it uh you know and and i feel like that's very much what's been happening here, not just like in, in Texas and Mississippi, but it's like we we make the reality of the end of the pandemic. We're like we're not only are we witnessing people like being ready personally to be done, but all this authority is getting exerted in ways to say like, no, definitively, like it's not just that we, we might be turning a corner. It's like, no, 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 we're done. Right. Yeah. I mean, so on Tuesday, the governors of both Mississippi and Texas issued separate executive orders lifting their state's respective mask mandates. And I know the one in Texas specifically gave all businesses the green light to open at full capacity, which 
has been portrayed as the sort of unique thing that's only happening in Texas and Mississippi. And there's been a lot of like, I've seen a lot of takes that are like, fuck Texas, like let Texas burn or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I want to get into those terrible takes later. Yeah. And it, it just completely ignores the fact that no, you know, Texas and Mississippi are not unique in uh, getting rid of the mask order. Some states never even had a mask order in the first place, um, like Oklahoma, for example. And I mean, it's part of the sort of like liberal media take ecosystem to blame southern states and blame red states for their own misery. Right. And to be explicit, I mean, here here's a here's the list of states that have no mask mandate, um, which, to be clear, it is, I guess, questionable the degree to which mask mandates themselves have been like effective anyway right but the so no mass ma- mandate exists in uh, alaska arizona florida georgia idaho iowa mississippi missouri montana nebraska north dakota oklahoma south carolina south dakota tennessee and now texas yeah so that it's not like an a isolated game where you're supposed to name as many states as you can think of basically well that's only like you know a little over a dozen but still but, you but know. there's i mean if what you're saying is true already right that um essentially because of how politicized the mask issue, among others, right, has been the mandate itself was really precatory. Like it was mainly advising people to do a thing. It wasn't something where anybody was being like, you know, uh, given a t- citation, right, for not wearing a mask, uh, generally speaking. So Though that, naturally- has, uh, that does happen, I think, in New York. Um, right. Like on the subway, you'll get a ticket or something. Right. If you're not wearing. But a that's. Mask, but I think is, we could say not the rule. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. That's yeah, the yeah, exception. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a very cynical calculation here, which is that because the political context made these particular orders not as influential, say, on the the rate. Right. Which is the standard by which we judge these things. The the rate of cases, the rate of deaths. There is a very cynical calculation to say something like, at least with the mask mandate, because it was never really being enforced anyway, and because this issue is so politicized, that simply lifting it might not move the needle as much as one might think. And so one could avoid culpability um, for uh, that decision. Now, I think what's uh, that that's a cynical calculation and might also be wrong Right. It might also be the case that by having it not merely like the issue politicized, but a, a, a public leader like coming out and saying like, yeah, we're, we're going to abandon this thing. Oh, and by the way, all of these other things, which were themselves probably being partially enforced at best, we're now going to like lift the lid on those, too. And this is going to create a, a set of ripple effects where other people like repeat that and then it becomes something that people can rehearse and and and, and perform um, in the world. And it might be a very, um, you know, it might be a very wrong calculation, right? Yeah, I, f- I feel like one of the things that that you don't see reported on because it's, you know, you're right, Phil, as you're saying, like, it's not like there's some mask squad who runs around the United States issuing citations for people who wear it like a chin strap, right? Like, that just doesn't exist. Enforcement has been largely done by retail employees, let's be honest, right? Like in a way, the mask mandate gives protection to workers who are on the front line, who are dealing with people coming into their places of work 
without a mask. It gives those workers some sort of like legal framework to try and enforce their own safety in the workplace. And and what Texas and Mississippi have all done is basically say to workers, get fucked. You right. no longer have this way to assert your own safety in the workplace. And not only are we going to, you know, in particular in Texas, like not only are we going to say that you do not have this sort of legal enforcement behind your assertion of safety in the workplace, you also no longer have the capacity limits to enforce either because it's all businesses open at full capacity. Well, that I think that's the point is that it would be a mistake to see or to to ask questions about the effects of this particular decision in just one state. The entire question that the next six months to a year are going to revolve around is how do pandemics end? And and we've said this before, but I I think this puts an even finer point on it, which is at what point does one say that, you know, COVID-19 is now no longer rises to the level of a public health emergency, right? And when you have states sort of r- routinely abandoning these uh, these measures, it creates a different sense of what the baseline should be in terms of spread uh, for what what counts as a as as the end. You know, obviously, the WHO has a, you know, an executive committee. It determines when like pandemics are over. But in, in the case of like emergency declarations in the United States, it's entirely possible that, that that's the next frontier is just just declaring that uh, that this is over and and this is a this is in a way a prelude to that. I mean, I think that this question uh, when and how pandemics end is like the really salient point here, though, right? Because even the Nostradamus ish or whatever comment that we joked about at the very beginning of the episode, like that itself. That comment came itself in response to our episode COVID is over if you want it being looked at as like, oh, look, like they wanted it. And now like the pandemic is over in response specifically to Texas. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, as we've said before, like no matter where you look, it's like socially and politically, everyone just like wants it to be at end game. And that is like the that is the the, the result is being produced that is being sought, I think. right? Right. No. And you can expect that the midterm elections are going to revolve around the following conflict because of the way that this has all been set up. And and you can already hear this from somebody like DeSantis uh, in Florida who has, you know, criticized some of the aid, the aid package uh, for going to states with, uh, for having a portion that goes to states with higher levels of unemployment. And the, the argument that DeSantis is making is that uh, why are you rewarding states that didn't take a balanced approach to Dumb. managing the pandemic, unlike Florida, which took a responsible one. I mean, that that's essentially <laughs> what's being said. And, and you can imagine that if the if the sort of idea in, in the consciousness of, you know, a median Republican voter is that the pandemic, even if real, was sort of overstated, overregulated, overcontrolled uh, mm-hmm. relative to what was necessary. And, and this will be easier to sell to people uh, when you have mass vaccination, right? It'll be easier to sell to people on that basis. And that anything that was done to prolong regulation uh, was something that kept people out of work longer, you know, and 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 increased people's particular sort of material uh, hardships. So this is why 
all of these, th- this is, I think, what enrages me about the Biden administration's handling of its current relief bill and its capitulation to moderate Democrats, which is that it is essentially giving away the game to Republicans on that political conflict. It is saying like, yeah, uh, I guess we are going to cut back uh, these relief measures. And it's going to it, it, it essentially allows them to like have something to stick their claim to. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's the, the sort of absurd thing. Which goes to the question of what happens when states like Texas and Mississippi uh, and others, you know, they're, they're far, far more than those. What happens? What should the Biden administration do to uh, stop the spread of the virus or to, to alleviate the spread of the virus in those states? And this is where you get some really aggravating takes that are just like, oh, well, uh, these states are making bad decisions. Why should we subsidize their bad decisions? Uh, Mm -hmm. This is like the uh, Washington Post, I think Jennifer Rubin uh, take on, um, you know, well, we should just (laughs) deny Texas aid because that'll change their minds. And it's like Another classic from Jay Rubin blogger. I'm just like, Jennifer. They made their bed. Hey, you know, if Texas gave a shit about federal money, maybe they would have expanded Medicaid. But clearly they (laughs) haven't done that yet. So your entire premise of this is wrong. I mean, it's just incredibly wrong. And it reveals that, you know, nothing about how like federal aid to states works. Um, I mean, and Texas isn't the only state which that describes. It's not about the money. But on the other end of the spectrum, I think there have been quotations from people within the Biden White House who have a very crabbed understanding of what their power is to do something about this, which is like, well, uh, that's them's the breaks. That's federalism. I guess the president can like essentially talk uh, about why this is a bad decision. I think Biden called it like Neanderthal, Neanderthal thinking. Yeah, uh, like that's a uh, weird choice of words. Probably would not have used that. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but he might as well you, as just have just said, like, it's all the deplorable states or whatever it, for exactly. all that's going to be leveraged, you know. This is just like it's p- politically just really, really idiotic. Um, but the but the question is like, OK, clearly neither of those positions is right. You don't get anywhere by denying states, uh, you know, money like that. That's not a carrot or that's not a stick. Right. That, that really works. N- nor can you just say, like, well, I, I guess like we can you know, issue a strongly worded letter. So like, what can the federal government do? And, I, and I've been thinking about this. It's like, this has been the problem with democratic policy from the beginning, which is that in a lot of these states, you can't, you know, to some level, you can you can give states money for, for public health, right? You can provide them uh, the money to do this thing. But what you really have the power to do and what works and what has not been pushed as effectively is actually paying people to stay home. It's very easy to see how that would change the incentives of individuals and firms, right? And it has, and you go, you completely do an end run around states. It doesn't matter, right? If people, it gives people the capacity to 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 do the right thing. Well, I mean, but I think beyond the sort of like power wrestle, basically, that is, you know, about what like what the different components within federalism uh, like do and what the, how they can like what they what they can leverage against each other. I think there is also just a fundamental disconnect in the the very like decision made in in texas that i think stems from the way like so much of the way that on on really like a national level the the pandemic itself has come to be understood so for example um dave carney who is uh i guess one of 
Governor Abbott's advisors, his one of Lackeys. his political consultants, <laughs> said of this decision to lift these restrictions, quote, the restrictions were put in place to deal with availability of ICU units. That is not an issue anymore. So excuse me, if you look at and I know that this could just be a, you know, an excuse or something, but I'm considering the the ways that people have been talking about the pandemic and the degree to which I mean, you know, we talked in the patron episode this week about how people have that despite the fact that we know that the virus uh, can spread through aerosolized transmission and that it can thus spread at further distances than six feet, we have taken the six foot rule as this sort of like gold standard of safety in pretty much any any situation, even when it's like clearly not um, in a sa- in the same way, you know, I think some people have not really updated their um, predilections about what control of the pandemic really means and the whole bend the curve thing from the very beginning of the pandemic is this exact logic here i think that is being you know whether again i I, i'm not so interested in whether it is being stated in good faith necessarily like i don't know if again i don't know if this is an excuse or not but it's certainly uh because of the way that we have handled the pandemic and and because of the way that from top to bottom we we are like normalizing the idea of being at the end stage of the pandemic when that is far too premature at this mm-hmm. stage um makes it completely within the realm of uh plausibility to say oh yeah well that was about icu beds like we have plenty of hospital capacity now it's like it's right. all it's all good just you know open it up you can go back to target without a mask or whatever although i'm sure a bunch of corporate uh i'm sure a bunch of like corporate retail will you know, continue to have mask like mandates or whatever, just not referencing the state, but you know, I think it like really emphasizes the fact that so much of what the idea of like normal is for so many people is actually like a visual state of the world (laughs) around them. Not a, not a, a health state or a, a viral state. Like it's more about when you talk to people about why they feel weird right now, they talk about um, the visual signifiers around them, empty restaurants, empty streets. People talk about Midtown like a ghost town, uh, people in masks, not, you know, and, and so it's it's almost like a lot of these uh, state governments are posturing to try and remove the visual yes. signifiers of the pandemic. And that yes. becomes our sort of primary way of tracking normal is visually what does the world around you look like? What does it mean to you as an individual, right? Like, and we're not evaluating if the, if the world around you makes you feel safe. We're evaluating how much the world around you looks like a pre-pandemic world. And in trying to barrel forward with reopening and prioritizing the economy, what we are doing is prioritizing the visual aesthetic of a pre-pandemic life. But I, I think that's a, that's such an important point, Beatrice, which is that um, it, and, and it actually raises this issue is that because our senses and our experience of the world are so important to the way that we perceive problems that we, you know, make sense of the world, like displacing that, displacing those intuitions is incredibly difficult, right? Because in many cases, like it's entirely fine to just listen, trust your experience of the world, to trust your intuitions about uh, how things are. Um, But in, in in the state where a, a disease is spreading and it's invisible, you have to construct a different 
visual register and different like register of objects to to get people to change the way that their their sense of the world uh, works. And like that, that's what the whole point of like reporting the numbers is. That's what the whole point of like the maps are. That's what the whole point of the the hotspot uh, sort of imagery uh, is, is to to actually create a different sensory experience for people of something that they can't otherwise see. So because in the absence of that, and when you remove those things or give people uh, a, a basis to uh, to challenge them, the thing that that returns is that you know most of the, you know most of the time for for many people, especially you know increasingly, it's going to be harder to see people suffering in these sort of uh, a, a, acute uh, ways, and so it uh, it does create an ending through ending the sort of visual register of. Uh, of what's happening or giving people a, a basis to like completely reject that. I mean, and that's, that's the situation we find it like that. That's a battle. That's a battleground that has to be fought. It can't be sort of uh, glossed over or ignored. I think this is also really well illustrated in the way that I think much of the conversation about the pandemic actually has strangely tucked to the side, the coronavirus itself mm-hmm. and has sort of refocused on the idea of the variants. I mean, even if you look at all, yeah. I mean, pra- practically every um, thing written about like the Texas decision, for example, a lot of the, most of the stuff written about like the vaccines, uh, the vaccine rollout, um, certainly even stuff both for and against the idea of having a paid shutdown. All of these things, all of this conversation, I think has recentered around the, the like vaccines versus variants race, as you will, where, yeah. uh, if you will, where it's like the, the concern that is drawn up is not the virus that has killed hundreds of thousands of people just in this country alone and is still killing and is still killing yeah. thousands of people a day, literally <laughs> yeah. in this country alone. The big danger is this threat of, you know, looming variants, which, yeah, I mean, like, you know, go listen to B's interview with Paul Binash. Like, yeah, yes, genetic variants of the virus are potentially a huge problem. However, the virus as it currently exists is also a is huge also problem. a huge problem. Right. Um, and it sets a troublesome precedent because already so much of the attention has shifted towards this, you know, nebulous future threat. Yeah. And there, I mean, the part of the nature of this pandemic is that we do have, this is the first time we've had a pandemic of this or a, like a, a uh, you know, novel disease outbreak of this magnitude where we have also had this magnitude of genetic sequencing available. So also who knows whether this is like also a more common thing than we think, but still. Yeah, it it, it actually, it's, it's very much, I I, I call this the sort of this, this broader phenomenon, I think exists like in in a bunch of different things that are going on right now, but I I would call like the Ouija board (laughs) approach to um, observing social and epidemiological phenomena, which is uh, observe it however you want, but don't at any time acknowledge that you're moving the planchette, right? Don't at any time acknowledge that like your actions have consequences um, (laughs) in the world, right? And this is like, this is the thing where people are like, oh, like, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, more infectious. So like that is very contingent on the things that we do. That is very contingent on the strategies we use to control community spread. Similarly, it's like, oh, 
you know, oh, state state tax revenues didn't do as badly as we thought that they would. It's like, well, of course not. The federal government provided a huge stimulus that helped sustain people's incomes, which could then be taxed. And we also made really dumb decisions about opening the economy back up too soon. So, like, why would you expect it to be otherwise? But I think the point is that, like, the way that people want to portray this is as if all of these things that are happening in the world are happening because of exogenous or random (laughs) forces rather than the effects of human decisions. And, and like, by not talking about the agency that we have to do things collectively, you do uh, create a sense that uh, everything is out of control. And and that, to me, is the most dangerous thing. Uh, The idea that, like, no, there's nothing we could do that would have an effect. It's like, yes, there is. And we've, (laughs) and, and like, look at it. Right. It has. Right, exactly. And I know I, I want to be very clear. We're seeing it framed as if like, oh, OK, you know, well, we've got through those three waves of COVID, but now the variant's here and it's going to get you right. Like and you got a double mask because the variant. What are we actually doing social reproductive wise when we say that the variants are what justifies further action? It's that when we use the variants alone as this kind of like rhetorical boogeyman, it reinforces the idea that we need to do nothing for regular COVID, right? And that's fundamentally a dangerous way to operate because it sort of creates this conditionality which undermines efforts to suppress the pandemic at large by framing it as this sort of like, as you're saying, follow this like phenomenological like development in the virus that just spontaneously happened, not at all because of our actions as a society, which put selective pressure on the virus, right. but that the sort of magical um, new evil arose like primarily primevally out of the earth or some bullshit like that in order to justify the need to take more extreme measures to protect people. And that's not true. We have needed to take more extreme measures to protect people since 12 months ago, and we have not. And it's back to this idea of the sort of the variance determining need for further action being a kind of noble lie and that you've heard some people say, well, whether it's an, a problem of like community spread or if the vir- variants themselves are actually evolving to be more infectious, it doesn't really matter as long as that in the end justifies further action in the right direction, right? But what I'm saying is that from a standpoint of, of meaning and narrative, right? <laughs> What's going on when we say that the variants justify extreme actions, we are saying that COVID doesn't, that the first version, that SARS-CoV-2 doesn't need extreme actions. And that's fundamentally false. No, I think that I think that's right, B. It's it's I think kind of fascinating to me that there is this resistance to because what you're talking about is the really reflective of the fact that managing something like this is invariably a political process. And I, and I don't mean that like it's just sort of naked self-interest that, uh, that guides it, but that, um, though it can be, though it can, I mean, (laughs) though it can be, and it often is, but I think more, more broadly speaking, or I guess the sort of positive version of that is that while we have like public health laws in the books and there's, you know, professionalized legions of, uh, public health, um, workers uh, and scientists doing something like managing a pandemic is so anathema to the set of principles that we've set up about what 
government is for, how government's supposed to work, what we owe to one another, um, what what the sort of priorities of, you know, a, a country is that like it would have to be it, it has to involve uh, actions in which you're persuading people where you're convincing people uh, to do something that are in our entire set of institutions and cultural uh, concepts has led people to be predisposed not to be able to do. And, right. um, and, and I think that that like the variant discourse is, is just sort of one um, example uh, of where, of where that comes in. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was supposed to happen today was that the CDC was supposed to release guidelines today on what vaccinated people could do. Politico actually uh did report on an early draft of what the guidelines were supposed to be, though these are obviously apparently going to change. But it was supposed to say that people who had received a full course of vaccine could socialize with other vaccinated people in small groups in home without masks and that vaccinated individuals should continue to adhere to mask and social distancing guidance in public. Um, And it was also supposed to lay out various like ways to evaluate risk relative to travel. And the thing that's so interesting to me when I when I look at that and think about, well, what actually is this conveying to people? It's conveying that tourism is safe and that you should travel to go visit your family that you haven't been able to see. And the reality is, is that I don't think that that's necessarily um, a recommendation that we should be seeing coming from the federal government before the vaccine rollout is at the point of reaching anything close to herd immunity. Right. And I think it just it's interesting because when I saw when I saw these proposed what the guidelines were supposed to be that were supposed to be released about vaccinated people, it really made me think like, wow, this seems to me like a response to the fact that there are some that there is like no expectation of federal aid to states going forward, that that there are some states that are not recovering and that what those states are being hurt by is their lack of tourism income is states like Florida who really rely on tourism as a generator of, of municipal revenue. And, and I feel like part of, part of that is, um, is a, is a rhetorical framing that's completely unnecessary that we're seeing from the CDC that feeds into this idea that, um, it's kind of a, a sink or swim situation when it comes to like state survival in this capacity where they're, they're refusing to, um, lead by example or put pressure on states that are reopening. They're refusing to give aid to help stop people from reopening. And they're creating guidelines which support tor- or would have theoretically supported tourism. Now, obviously, as we said, these guidelines were put on hold and have not been released. So it it will change. I wonder what it'll actually say. But, but this is a really dangerous thing to do um, only a year into a virus that we still really don't understand, especially considering the fact that... Um, you know, states like Texas have gone through such extreme natural weather phenomenon the past couple of months anyways, you know. Yeah. And I think that this I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up, this point about, you know, states, state and local governments not needing additional aid is like so, so much part of the, the discourse. I mean, this is actually like, you know, moderate Democrats uh, or whatever conservative Democrats in the Senate are 
you know, uh, like it is one line that they're pushing that uh, states are they don't really need this money. They're going to use it irresponsibly. And it's just so <laughs> I mean, there's so many problems with this. And there's like this New York Times story that was like, oh, see, states aren't doing that badly. And it's like one. God, what if they just put all that money towards Medicaid? So irresponsible. Right. And it's just sort of like, well, one you don't know what you're talking about because in the New York Times analysis, their measure of of state need is change in revenue from one year ago, which if <laughs> like the very basic elementary understanding of what public finance is, is revenue is one half of the picture. The other half is states have spending needs. So if you only look at the revenue side and say like, oh, OK, well, like there's a lot of states, though not all of them. And I would emphasize that tourism dependent states uh, and states dependent on industries that were particularly affected outside of tourism, uh, affected by the pandemic, are doing much worse than that. But beyond that, uh, you haven't taken into consideration uh, state spending needs at all. And we know that even if revenues are flat during the pandemic, state spending needs have increased. And beyond that, the idea that like there's money sitting around is absurd because the data that the federal government collects on how state and local governments are spending the money they were given by the federal government is number one, like lagged by a quarter. And number two, doesn't take into account money that states and local governments have committed, but because of the timing of the spend out, haven't spent yet. So this idea that there's just like no need to do anything more, that everything is fine or everything is fine, <laughs> it, it like it extends both to the the pandemic, like that we're turning the corner, but also to the idea that uh, that that the economy is, is, is turning a corner and that actually state and local governments don't need the help that they do. And like, you know, this is really a a powerful reminder of what happens when what drives the discussion is just like an incredibly narrow sliver of data. I mean, that's the sort of part where actually having people's experiences and, and context uh, in the discussion uh, is really important. And it's the kind of thing that like this, I don't know, this trend in like data journalism and uh, these sorts of understandings of the world that just completely ignore the way that people experience it have driven the conversation in this really dangerous sort of way. Yeah. And it, it, it sort of ties into this, um, this thing that we were talking about, like what Jennifer Rubin blogger said about Texas, which is basically like, fuck Texas, let it, let it burn. Like they brought this upon themselves, this, this framing of states as sitting on all of this money, like is a harmful framing because it is a, a politic of abandonment. It is an argument for, for social abandonment of like entities that we consider to be part of our like sovereign nation on the grounds that um that they are asking for need that they don't deserve which is you know pre-pandemic public schools needed hvac updates and simply restoring to pre-pandemic revenue levels for states is not going to do anything to address the fact that you know public schools in that state really needed a shit ton more money before the pandemic right and especially considering ex extra costs because of the pandemic, really getting back to that same level of funding, like, does that represent actually meeting anyone's needs or is that actually like textually negligence based on the fact that we know that there are these additional expenses and we know that HVAC is is not safe in these buildings, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of liberal version of the Manhattan Institute conservative argument <laughs> about uh, the undeserving poor. I, I regard the Manhattan Institute as being the 
the sort of pioneer uh, of that uh, argument. And it's it's like not surprising that one, the Manhattan Institute applies the same logic to states as they do human beings, that they're like, oh, they're undeserving states with money that they're prop being profligate with or there's money hiding under like the couch cushions or whatever yeah i mean i was gonna say it's like uh these politicians have been designing or at least promoting public policy for so long that uh pins any welfare benefit on previous year's earnings that they just had to go ahead and do it for states too right yeah yeah exactly moral judgments that uh well i mean it's the same way with uh it's the same way that credit rating agencies, like the same moral judgments that they apply to human beings, they apply to <laughs> uh, they apply to state and local governments. But um, the uh, but the the liberal version of this, right, is that um, well, we you know we're unsure about what these states uh, will will do with this money, and like it it might be you know. Uh, it might be something that we don't want them to do. And so we're going to put all of these restrictions uh, on how they use it because, you know, God forbid uh, they, God forbid they use it. Um, and I, and I think that that's like, that's the, the lesson that, that in a sense hasn't been recognized from the great recession, which is like, if you want money to get out there, uh, putting a lot of restrictions that basically force state and local officials to like haul in the lawyers and say like, if we spend this money, are we going to get, uh, are we going to be punished right, right for doing yeah. this? This is a perfect way to ensure that money doesn't get out there. Right. If you, if, if you, know, the, and, and this is exactly what's happening. The, the, the bill that's now been revised in the Senate uh, not only cuts the amount of money to local governments and diverts it for, uh, broadband uh, investment, which, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with broadband investment. Just add money. Uh, You already took out the $15 (laughs) minimum wage, so you've got money to play with. So why not just make that an addition rather than a subtraction? But I digress. Um, The... Uh, But, you know, additionally, they put in all of these restrictions on the way that uh, uh, state and local governments can use this money, despite the fact that the main reason why uh, government finance officers in state and local governments reported that they it, they found it difficult to spend money was not that there wasn't need. It was because of all of the fucking restrictions in the Code of Federal Regulations on how to use the money. So mm-hmm. the, the, just the idea that uh, the sort of like liberal propriety is going to be the, the guiding way out of the economic part of this crisis is absurd to me. And 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 the thing is, are there risks that uh, state and local governments are going to use the money in in ways that, uh, you know, you might not like? Yeah. But overall, which is worse, more states not being able to use the money at all uh, or a couple states doing dumb things? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's important for my own sanity and mental health to always remind myself to be like, well, why do they think states don't need this? What are they actually afraid of? Right. Because that's so buried often in, in discussion of this stuff. But it's just that the idea that of of need and deservingness, right? That that has been so central to the pandemic and it's so warped. We have no understanding what actual need is from a policy perspective in this country because for decades it's been written out, right? Intentionally written out of policy framings and in in its place has been this idea of um of waste fraud and abuse of of people rampant corruption, right? But show me where the rampant 
corruption is that gets in the way of like well, school spending. The other thing is that like, right? you know what? Uh, is there going to be some minimum level of like fraud or corruption out there when you have like public uh, dollars available for use? Yes, yeah. there always will be. The question that you have to ask when you make that point is what's worse? The uh, minimum level of fraud that's that's going to happen as a result of this or even, you know, to say nothing of fraud, just just uses of the money that you don't necessarily agree with for moral or political reasons, whatever they might be, or the fact that there, that all of the restrictions will prevent the money from getting to where it needs to go. Like, that's right. the thing, like when, when these, you know, and again, waste, fraud and abuse wonks are are all over the political spectrum. They, they emerge for any number of reasons and they never confront. They are never forced to confront the fact that there's always a choice that you have to make. Is it worse that sometimes the money gets used in ways you don't like, or is it worse <laughs> if the money isn't uh, getting out there? Um, right. And, and I th- and I think that um, you know, in the context of this debate, it also revolves around the fact that um, need, in the context of a single piece of legislation, is when you're when you're justifying it, you're always looking for a simplified, reductive measure of need and the for one for one reason or another revenues has become the easy way all of the forecasters that's what they use mark zandy at at moody's and others it it became the sort of especially at the beginning of the crisis because it was so bad in terms of revenue forecasts that was the easy way of justifying what the aid would be spending dealing with the spending side is always harder because you begin to have to make subjective judgments about what needs are and uh it's complicated and it involves political leadership uh around doing that or like at least taking a stand saying like you know what i don't think it's a good idea that in mississippi nine percent of people who are eligible for unemployment insurance actually go and get it like i think that that's bad you actually have to make a claim about that it's not as easy as looking at a table and especially you know what happens you know and i've heard this happen on you know npr uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure if it happens in NPR, uh, it is happening in certain quarters of the United States Senate, uh, is that they just refer to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget's estimates oh, of need as if the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has any understanding of what is going on in the offices of government finance officers at the municipal level right now, what uh, <laughs> new needs are emerging. I mean, mm-hmm. e- even even to say that, like, what we think of on the spending side is uh, what has been budgeted. Uh, that, that that is what you know budgeting from for, for this fiscal year in terms of need takes into consideration not at all needs that are unmet. So uh, I, just this completely uh, decontextualized uh, uh, vacuum understanding of what need is just reveals. Um, and the fact that like you have to find like a simple table to like translate into like the amount of money that you're going to give. I mean, it just reveals how, um, how barren, uh, our, our political, yeah. uh, landscape is. Um, I mean, and, and the fact that like, it's not the understandings of people on the ground that's informing what need is. It's an understanding of like what, what is, 
uh, politically feasible under this $1.9 trillion cap that's been set by the reconciliation process. Right. Well, and if we walk away from the top level for a second, what are one of those needs, right? So confirmed reported uh, coronavirus cases have, have dropped in recent weeks, right? right? So it's down to, you know, we're, I think the like the latest uh, seven week moving average is something that like about uh, somewhere between 70 and 80,000 new, da- infections, da- new yeah. infections daily, right? Part of that or like something linked to that figure, obviously, is how many tests are being done. Um, And nationwide testing has itself dropped by 30 percent in recent weeks. Um, Very because states and local governments uh, have very limited public health resources. In most cases, you have seen a lot of cases where state and local governments have shifted some of their resources from testing from COVID testing to the vaccine rollout effort. Again, I'm not saying that this accounts entirely for this drop in cases, but it is a factor mm-hmm. in the in the cases. Um and you know, this is something that we called out fucking um that uh that uh grifter group in Philadelphia Philly fighting covid for mm. for doing just just literally weeks ago we we were uh making fun of how this you know the the like you know 20 something uh startup founder of this nonprofit turned for profit entity that was doing uh vaccinations in the Philadelphia area area had moved to doing vaccines from doing testing and said basically like well now you know test testing is irrelevant now the thing is just doing the vaccine and unfortunately <laughs> that is mirrored in a lot of like national uh discussion and there are a lot of like local uh city and state and like you know like county health departments that are because again because they are not well funded or because they do not have the the funds um at that level to uh you know to to do both at the le- like both the vaccine rollout and testing at the level that uh would be necessary right there's like there's uh, there's some degree of unmet capacity right right? i mean the white house Um, itself is now not providing tests to journalists but requiring journalists to provide their proof of testing negative in order to come into the press room which is absurd because they have direct federal funding but just just, but still like the but what i'm yeah what i'm what i'm saying is you know among all of the other things that you know state and local aid might be very good to have for because it'll be used somewhere somehow right it is the fact that it's entirely possible that our very picture of how many infections are happening is even worse than it was in recent weeks because we've had to shift resources right right and and there's a survey by the census bureau that came out i think this week it was just like looking at the number of people by sort of industry who are uh if they're prevented from coming to work because they test positives like it's firms are by and large not enforcing any sense that people have to not be COVID positive to to come to work. I mean, this is like, and it's not surprising, like when testing availability is, was already so uh, minimal. I mean, despite the number of tests being done, um, there's a question about like, was it enough? Like how many people could actually get tested at their site of work? I mean, it, most, most I think for for most people, you had to go off site to get tested, and this is already creating barriers to to any sort of like acceptable testing uh, regime nationwide. So even the baseline was bad, right? Um, right. And now we're we're far below that, right? And and I mean, in setting up this sort of like 
carceral structures, right? Where we we build things and assume that there's going to be this like spurless waste, fraud, and abuse happening. Not only are the people who design these systems never asked to actually produce evidence of that waste, fraud, and abuse, and then they're not asked to justify if that waste, fraud, and abuse is is worth putting these restrictions on. There's just this assumption that people are evil and bad and will do evil and bad things unless we surveil them, unless we um, restrict them, unless we're, we make sure that they fully uh, are terrified of the consequences of even touching the money, right? And that that framing is not only false, but it also is a make-work program for public-private partnerships at the end of the day. And as we've seen over and over and over, the preference to farm things out, um, to redirect funds away from the most efficient way to get it to people in need and, you know, put in place all these uh, app surveillance systems or, you know, workplace testing, reporting portals or digital COVID certificates to get back into your office building. You know, that is that is a decision. This is not an accident that somehow public-private partnerships are just springing fully formed from the earth, right? This is a decision to to make things this way, to direct funds that way, to make things difficult because we because we have like built into every system of social support in this country back to like back to the Massachusetts colony right, which were some of the first uh, laws about how to manage municipal funds that were going to, quote unquote, dependents in the society, right? You have back then systems of determining who is deserving and who is undeserving that are based on, you know, puritanical values about good and evil. And that virtually has not changed between, you know, the 1600s in the United States and today. And it's 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 absolutely just completely embedded in almost every system that we use to support people. If you think about like means testing with Medicaid, if you think about the way that we have incentives to prevent people on Medicaid from getting married or people on SSI from getting married, right? We have penalties for for people who have non-normative bodies who want to have a, you know, normative biological family, right? We try and prevent it. And this is these are intentional decisions that we we make to try and control what the population looks like and who survives. And this is absolutely rampant and deadly, like in the context of the pandemic, especially. Yeah, I mean, and I think that this actually brings us back to maybe the more important thing, which is where we started, uh, which is that. Because estimates of need are so prey to this, you know, one of two two risks, like either a very oversimplified, decontextualized process where like whatever the easiest measure of need is, however bad, is going to be, you know, used in legislation. Or on the other hand, uh, a very, uh, re- you know, restrictive and sort of moralizing sense of uh, what need should be is is employed. Like both of these things are very much in, in reality. Um that uh, what really is going to matter uh, or, and like what really is sort of the, the, the big switch in a lot of these programs is the 
state of public health emergency. Like that is ultimately right. like a huge switch. I mean, Medicaid, uh, expanded Medicaid funding is like one like example of this, right? Um, it's, it's not tied to levels of unemployment, right? It is tied to the existence of an emergency. So like expect to see that become a really big, uh, political issue. Um, and, and that's why these, these decisions that, that, uh, attempt to, uh, deconstruct the idea that an emergency exists, uh, in a very like Gramscian way, um, will really matter uh, for what resources people have access to um, uh, going forward. Like that is the big switch. And and it's like surprising to me that like when people talk about how the pandemic ends, they're, they're mostly talking about like how will, what are the social cues uh, that people will use? What are the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, guidelines that people will follow as individuals? Like they're not right, talking yeah. about this really big political decision that we're going to have to make about when emergency is over. And, um, and so uh, I, uh, we will have to keep coming back to this. Right. Cause this determination of what is an emergency and what isn't, and when we are in crisis and when we are not in crisis is ultimately a decision about deserving and undeserving aid. Right. Because when we step out of crisis, then suddenly this sort of sink or swim policy becomes much more palatable. But the reality is ultimately like whatever we socially decide about the pandemic being over, the virus is still not going anywhere right now, objectively speaking. So what what a lot of like what's going on sort of represents is this this translation, right, of of like crisis into a determining factor about deservingness. And in in doing that, I like what really, really worries me is the fact that what this represents reminds me a lot of various implicit programs in the history of the United States where we we did completely dispose of populations in a way that was incredibly nonchalant. Right. And when we do these sort of processes of, of, of saying, OK, masks are gone. We're back to normal. Go back to restaurants. Go back to movie theaters. You know, what is that? What is that doing? But creating the dividing line of deservingness right there in real time. Well, I think maybe this will be sort of a coda to this conversation or maybe this is a brief aside, basically. But I think that in a lot of ways over the last few weeks, obviously, we've been talking quite a lot about the sort of degrees of negotiability that have arisen Mm -hmm. over how the pandemic is declared over, whether it has already been declared over. Uh, But also, I think, um, I mean, the very terms of the crisis have always been negotiable to right. some degree and have always been taken as this sort of relative. Um, what I, what I mean by that is like, you know, we can talk about like the, okay, so Texas has blanket lifted a bunch of these restrictions, obviously in a lot of places, you know, there were some types of restrictions never took place in other places. Uh, you know, there's been this kind of like hybrid mishmash or like, you know, there, or they're, you know, in a lot of places largely ignored, um, and you can just like, you know, go go out to a restaurant or whatever. But let's walk back really quickly to last July in uh, Mesa County, Colorado, the city of Grand Junction. So last July, the Grand Junction area 
Chamber of Commerce partnered with the Mesa County Health Department on a program called the quote-unquote Variance Protection Program. Now, this means variance as in you go to, like, your experience may vary, not mm. as in variance of the coronavirus protection. Gotcha. So um, the idea was essentially this. So Colorado, like a lot of states, uses a color-coded system to determine, like, what threat level it's at, which we've made fun of in, in other cases. This county program, this county program, again, which was a, a joint creation of the chamber, the local chamber of commerce, which worth stating, especially for our non-American uh, listeners, the chamber of commerce is something that has made like the title sounds official and they're, they're all over the country, but this is just like the local business, like the business coalition, basically, right. this is not a part of the government. So the cha- local chamber of commerce, the local like business uh, group fraternity fraternity. Yeah. The local fraternity of businesses um, partnered with the public health department, to launch this program whereby basically businesses could apply, they would be uh, vetted for a couple of different things. And then if they got a a quote unquote five-star certification, that business could then operate as though the county were at one threat level lower. What? So that means, right. So that means that essentially... Uh, let's say that your county is in red, right? Like threat level coronavirus threat or level. Or let's say red. you're in California, so you're in threat level purple, sure. which I find hilarious. That's their highest rating. Yeah. yeah. So let's say your county is in threat level red. If you have this business certification, you're allowed to operate as though you are in, or, and you know, let's say your county is in threat level red, and thus like your entire category of business is closed, right? If you have this certification, you're allowed to stay open under the auspices as though you are as though your county is in threat level orange um a key quote about this from a kaiser health news um coverage of this in february uh quote for for instance mesa county's restaurant capacity limit under current covid rules is 25 percent, but eating establishments in the five-star program are allowed to seat up to 50 percent capacity that's because so what, if you have five stars, COVID can't come in the door. So how do you get five stars? <laughs> this is like Michelin, like Michelin guide. Like, how do you get five stars? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's like they had, the, it's a bunch of pretty simple restrictions and including like, you know, uh, having a mask requirement and having, uh, you know, f- like physically distanced tables, for example, that's at a rest. I mean, at a restaurant, for yeah. example, um, there are a bunch of different businesses that this is open to, um, but you know, as as a lot so of people have pointed out, so you're rewarded for your ability to comply with safety theater, right? Except for the compliance doesn't actually it appears right. to not actually be that great. And my 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 fundamental point here is that it is functionally not only meaningless but actually creates exactly the type of risk that your public health interventions are trying to avoid. When you say, okay, we've checked out this place seems like fine for now like if you check if you hit these boxes you can be open literally to 50 percent capacity whereas our general public health understanding is like you know frankly like you know this type of business should be closed right now or you know at most like this amount of reduced capacity do you know what i mean it's like you you literally create a place where it is statistically more likely to catch the fucking coronavirus yeah i mean and this is i mean this is maybe an extreme version uh and the five-star thing is is hilarious but like look into your city's public health uh protocol and and guidance here (laughs) there's a lot of 
you know, edits to step four, which are like step 4.11 for work groups. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're like, oh, yeah, well, normally we would do this, but we're now going to like um, allow you to self-certify that everything's OK. Oh, um, boy. Yeah. I mean, this is this is really far more common than one would think. And uh, it is sort of like the American way of uh, the American way of regulation, which is to allow a bunch of carve outs and uh, self self regulation, self certification, and then to create a sense of, uh, you know, meaninglessness that like really regulations don't mean anything and that they don't have any effect anyway, which you would be you could be forgiven for believing if they were implemented like this. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like the biological determinism of of public policy, right? Yeah. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, man. It's frustrating because it just to like throw it back to something we talked about in the very beginning of the episode. It's like, what what do these like decisions and changes really represent to me? Well, an aesthetic judgment to try and make uh, society appear more as it did before combined with um, taking back protections uh, or ideological and rhetorical protections that workers used to enforce their personal safety on the job site. And what is that? But I don't know, revenge is social policy, right? Which I guess maybe brings us to the final thing we wanted to touch on today. Uh which is this opinion piece in the New York Times by Oren Cass, where he talks about the futility of using money to address poverty. Um, Talking about the Biden-Romney family (laughs) plans. Classic. (laughs) Classic, yeah. Actual quote. A generous cash benefit disconnected from work can also be economically and culturally counterproductive. So this this op-ed was a or is a critique of the Biden and Romney family plans, which are basically just um, fiscal stimulus to to families with children. Right. And we've we've talked about and I've I've been complaining about for weeks, you know, my frustrations with policies that are specifically targeted in ways to like build and save the family, because that uh, as a strategy has, you know, deep eugenic roots in this in this country. But but but, you know, this this uh, critique of even like that plan, which I I don't love um, and the idea that money in and of itself is not a way to intervene in poverty is something that we make fun of all the time. So I thought maybe I'd read some some quotes yeah, from give us some this. give us some of the delectable treats from Mr. Cass. <laughs> so he writes, money itself does little to address many of poverty's root causes like addiction and abuse, <laughs> ah, unmanaged yes. chronic and mental health conditions, family instability, poor financial planning, inability to find, hold, or succeed in a job, and so forth. Effective anti-poverty policy provides resources in ways that also help resolve such problems and push the recipient toward resolving them himself. So basically, the New York Times just uncritically printing yet another poverty as deviance take. Mm -hmm. No, but this is like the thing is it is entirely the case that when the sort of liberal poverty establishment the liberal liberal like poverty research and commentary establishment uh ignores as they have always done 
capitalism as a source of what reproduces poverty. Uh, and, you know, they would focus on uh, any number of other things. But when you fail to, to, to make that connection, this is the really easy and obvious move that uh, the conservatives can make. And it touches people's heartstrings. It's a, it's a morally compelling uh, argument for some reason that people are the agents of their own uh, destruction and uh, that, that moreover, uh, government has no uh, interest in allowing people uh, to uh, play out their, their sort of like deviant uh, lifestyles. Right. I mean, in a way, this, this op-ed is really just a manifesto about how we need to keep punishing people who are disabled and unemployed in order to make an example so workers feel proud of their own accomplishments, you know, and that there is justification for removing dignity for people who experience poverty. Um, he writes, some rewards of work arrive not in people's paychecks, but in the social status and respect that accompanies fulfilling their obligation to support themselves and their families. God. If the package of benefits afforded the non-worker approaches what workers labor to provide, those rewards dissipate. No one, it would turn out, is relying on them with consequences every bit as real as a pay cut. I, I really love the way that the terms of this debate have been said, because it's like what gives people uh, that, that sense of like pride in their work or accomplishment is not being remunerated well or, you know, being treated well uh, at work or having like a uh, a wage or a job that allows you to provide uh, for your family. It's the dignity of being like abused by your boss. It's the <laughs> dignity of uh, working for, um, you know, minimum wage, uh, you know, and, and just like having no purchasing power and having no health insurance and having no retirement security. It, it's the dignity that only, can be recognized, not say in any sort of natural law or the books, of the Bible, uh, or even in, in, in founding documents, but it's dignity that can be found within the mind and within the water cooler conversation of Bain and company. Uh, that, that's, that's where, that's where one sense of dignity comes from there. Why? Perhaps because you're so used to being shit on, uh, by the monsters that rule your life, uh, at, at, uh, Bain and company. Right. I mean, in a way it's kind of just like trying to justify, um, the little meanings we make of our exploitation in order to try and make that feel like it's not just like pointless. You know what I mean? He's he's trying to give meaning to to the suffering at work because that that is where dignity is forged. You know what I mean? In suffering. I mean, right? also <laughs> also just a couple of things about this. First of all, categorically uh, ridiculous to <laughs> suggest that that what is being suggested in terms of this like next quote unquote like COVID relief bill is some sort of like cash handout when all that is there is like a child tax credit. You know, if you're able to take advantage of a, of a tax credit to begin with, like you're already in a, you're already in a different economic position than a lot of people who might, you know, actually like benefit from additional support. Second thing, it is just incredibly mask off to have these, uh, to have just this, like as a top level, uh, discussion happening as part of the stimulus conversation be this w in which manner to do this extremely natalist policy right mm -hmm. i mean 
Like, especially considering the stuff that B was bringing up just earlier, where so many of our other welfare programs like Medicaid literally discourage you from being able to have or like make a family. Yeah. Right. Well, like, for example, like I am disabled and on on Medicare, right? I can't get reproductive services, but if I wanted to, I could get sterilized. Right. Right. And we have all these we have all these like systems and structures for ensuring that the right people make babies and the wrong people, quote unquote, don't. Right. And and to sort of frame it as, well, if you just give people with children direct cash stimulus, you know, there is a a problem because we remove the incentive to work and we remove the dignity to work. Well, if you take the mask off of that take, what they're really saying is the wrong people will have babies (laughs) if we give everybody with babies money. I mean, everything about this relief bill basically is doing is like is doing this in a very different way. I mean, even the Phil, you brought up the $15 minimum wage thing being removed, which itself was obviously, you know, a $15 minimum wage phased in by 2025 is like the greatest hits of the like, it's like bringing back the greatest hits of the Kamala Harris 10 years to a privatized Medicare for all (laughs) plan bullshit. But like the, uh, that provision, even the phasing in $15 minimum wage also included like removing rules that allow it, uh, that allow for sub minimum wage work by disabled people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also got stripped out. Oh, yeah. No, it's still totally <laughs> fine to uh, have people work in sheltered workshops for a fraction of uh, minimum wage. Really, what I'm saying is it really does seem like uh, I don't know. Well, everyone got what they wanted. The halcyon days of the Obama era are back. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, Cass is one of Cass's biggest problems with the way that this uh, this is being framed is that he thinks that universality in and of itself is bad and points to Social Security as a good example of a good welfare policy, because only people who have earned work credits earn Social Security when they retire. No, no, no. That's I mean, yeah, I I think that this is. So Cass is like an interesting figure because he, he's here criticizing Romney. Cass used to be an advisor, to like a primary advisor to Romney. And the Bain yeah. connection is, is very significant here. Cass is, I, I think, part of this um, conflict that, that we're seeing sort of on the right about what to make sense of, how to make sense of the Republican Party's, you know, uh, uh, decadal uh, assault on the working class and their simultaneously like interesting ability to attract working class votes in an electoral context. And so you have a variety of different um, kind of uh, strategies. I mean, you have this sort of uh, the, the more techno optimist approach to conservatism, which says that like the way that we, uh, you know, try to deal with this, you know, fury on, uh, you know, among among the working classes, like, you know, t- technology will solve things, um, you know, just like increased, uh, you know, decreased regulation, you know, increasing like global flows of capital, like things like that, this is, which is basically like doubling down on what the Republican Party has been about, you know, for, you know, it's it's post, you know, Nixon like history. Um, but the Cass is sort of represents this attempt to like carve out a different trajectory within uh, like free markets, uh, you know, approaches to, to thinking about these things. I mean, his big thing that he's been pushing for the last few years is this wage subsidy for for low skilled his words, uh, low skilled uh, Americans that, uh, you know, amounts to half of the difference between whatever their market wage is and $15 an hour. 
Um, and, and so like already like we're in a world where like for him, it's, it's not about like bringing up whatever the, the minimum wage is. It's like, uh, subsidizing and incentivizing work that is already, uh, precarious, you know, is, is without benefits, uh, is, uh, already in, in conditions which which workers are are likely to be uh, mistreated and, and more than that like the 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 insult to injury is to say like you know what we're gonna deal with that not even we'll, we, we won't uh, increase the minimum wage to do that but it's 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 an attempt to like make these further distinctions that that uh that in a way reify the conservative project with with a uh uh, the identity of, of, of workers. And that, that's like, what's I think really disturbing about it is not necessarily the, the contents of the proposal itself, which is just sort of like warmed over, um, you know, like warmed over beltway kind of shit. Uh, but is instead, yeah, I mean, I I see it as a broader sort of project of like further, I, you know, linking the making the link between uh, conservative identity and the identity identity people hold as workers which is you know a, a sort of frightening uh, frightening potential yeah i think that's a good place to leave it but maybe as a, a final note i'm just going to read one last line from this op-ed Monthly cash payments should go only to working households. The existing safety net remains the more appropriate support for the non-working <laughs> poor. <sighs> yeah, because we all know that does great by people. Yeah, It's basically like saying, how am I supposed to use the carrot if I don't have a stick? Yeah. All these carrots out there, not enough sticks. <laughs> the stick tastes like a carrot. That's the thing. Yeah, it's a carrot-shaped so. and flavored stick. <laughs> So like yeah, you 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 begin biting it, and then some sort of mechanism, some like Rube Goldberg mechanism comes out and then beats you. With it. <laughs> exactly. Um, become a patron. Oh support That's us. That's the on resolution Patreon. of all dialectics. <laughs> <laughs> Carrot and stick combined. <laughs> exactly. Two great tastes. All right. Um, I think that that's a good place to leave it for today. Become a patron, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two episodes a week. Get access to Monday's bonus episode as we were talking about. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
empty handed painter from your street. Drawing crazy patterns on your sheet. This guy too is fucking It's all over now. 